You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. I am definitely not free from fear regarding what AI means for our future. Um, but advancements like this could, could hold huge promises for our health. Mapping the brain on the cellular level could mean understanding Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, the way we think and act, maybe even understanding what makes us human. That was my colleague, Annie Berkey. That's just a teaser of what you'll hear later when she and I talk about interoperability, cybersecurity, and the role of AI in healthcare. But before we dive into that, let's focus on data. Much of healthcare's data is piecemeal. Between interoperability issues and point solutions that don't integrate with or or talk to one another, it can be nearly impossible to leverage the full potential of healthcare data. But when used properly, as we know, data can lead to meaningful interventions and better health outcomes. A few companies have set out to do just that, to curate a map of the healthcare system with a comprehensive view of patient encounters, the most comprehensive as possible. Anastasia Gladkovskia sat down with Arif Nathu, CEO and co-founder of a health tech company called Komodo Health, to discuss how healthcare stakeholders can work together to improve data collection. Here they are. Hi, Arif. It's great to talk to you again. Wonderful to speak with you as well. So I thought that we could start with uh, what is top of mind for everyone these days, which is healthcare data, and how broken and problematic the current infrastructure is, right? So I just want to get your take on what is broken and how we got here. I'll start with the how we got here. So um, healthcare in the U.S. is incredibly complicated. We have a wide variety of uh, payers in the system that pay for pay pay for services that are being provided by a, a totally independent set of providers, and as a result of that, you have a very complicated uh, journey of a patient. It becomes incredibly hard to see um, how a patient actually transverses through the system because there's no one place you can go, uh, and I think that's born out of a, a system that for decades has operated like this and. Uh, has never really required the idea that you know if we brought all of the data together on a patient we could we could drive better outcomes. It's a simple premise, but uh, has a phenomenally powerful outcome. And so what we've spent a lot of time doing is just taking stock of how broken the system is, understanding these dynamics, and then using that to find a better way uh, to stitch the journeys of these patients together and, and create a story of healthcare that's understandable. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's obviously a really, really massive problem. And Komodo, of course, set out to solve that. Um, and I know you work with uh, stakeholders all across the industry, healthcare, life sciences, and you offer analytics and insights into various um, patterns. It could be rare disease signals, uh, healthcare disparities, etc. Um, and so at this point, your database, your healthcare map is collecting de-identified data on 330 million patients. That's huge. And I'm wondering, like, walk us through how you built out this data set and uh, how you're taking into account that it's probably only going to get bigger. 
<laughs> yeah, so the, the journey of actually building out a data set like this just requires a lot of, uh, you know, beating your head against a wall. <laughs> Essentially, we've had to go to so many different parts of the healthcare ecosystem that are sitting on uh, really specialized information on patients, um, uh, either because they, they cover them as a payer or because they see them as a provider. And uh, part of what we've had to do is really try to figure out what is ground truth? Um, like what is what actually happened to this patient over the duration of uh, their their lifespan? The biggest problem that we've had to solve is is not, you know, a technical one. Amazingly, um, it's it's really one that I would say is, is founded on trust, you know, trust that you can actually. Uh, bridge the gap between a payer and a provider that you can stitch this journey together and you can do something really great for patients. So it's convincing a lot of people that something good uh, can be done for patients by bringing together all of these different cues on them. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And so I guess, how do you go about convincing folks or, or maybe more practically, how, how does that data sharing um, or exchange happen? Do you just approach an institution or, uh, you know, a government uh, agency and, um, you know, ask them to, to kind of feed the data into, into your data set? How does that work? It's a great question. The reality is that uh, every individual payer only sees the patient when they're on that insurance. And every provider only sees the patient when they're, you know, there for the, for the moments in time that they're there. So everyone has something to gain by understanding what happens to the patient outside of the setting of care. And so oftentimes what we're doing is showing folks that by actually bringing your data together, you can appreciate so much more richness of what's happened to the patient before and after you saw them. And that has a huge value for a lot of providers and payers that are only catching part of the story for a given patient or for a given provider. And so uh, the, the value to them is, is actually significant. And for us, it's an opportunity to show them the power of what happens when you bring these things together. Now, we have to do that in a way that is compliant and uh, uh, brings visibility while, while ensuring that privacy uh, for patients is met. And that's at the core of, of uh, what it takes to actually do this well. And so we work with a standard within HIPAA called uh, de-identified uh, patient-level data, and, and that allows us to bring together and stitch together these journeys in a way that's de-identified for patients, but then importantly allows folks to really trust the insights that they're getting from uh, stitching together these journeys. Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. And so I know Komodo Health also works with advocacy groups. Um, we did have Angie Davis on um, from Fight CRC recently on Podnosis. We talked about the work that you're doing together uh, to contribute to the White House Cancer Moonshot Initiative. And um, I guess maybe kind of a two-part question here. I'm wondering about the importance of these types of partnerships, um, but also how this type of data that you're collecting can inform public policy. So these types of partnerships provide an incredibly uh, strong value to patients. We love the work Angie's team does because they really highlight a lot of the disparities and inequities in colorectal cancer care. And that is where information from the healthcare map can really be instrumental to, to more deeply understanding the needs of patients and then helping policymakers find a way through that um, to result in better outcomes. For example, you know, we've seen massive differences in the, you know, in the number of days that it takes a, a black patient versus a white patient to get diagnosed 
Um, and, and often uh, black patients are diagnosed later uh, with more severe disease. And when you understand where that's happening and you understand the context in which that's happening, you can do so much as a policymaker to, to really provide better care across the board um, to reduce uh, mortality of cancer. And we think that the foundation of the map is to empower advocacy organizations to really do this for their patients. They can help uh, policymakers understand need. They can help patients understand where to go to seek the best care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And in your experience, have policymakers really understood the benefit and the the meaningfulness of this data? Um, because I would imagine, you know, it offers insights that are in some ways more comprehensive than what perhaps the CDC or the HHS have visibility into. So, what has the response been in your experience? Well, we're in the early days of, use, of using data like this to actually inform uh, policy decisions. I think for many years, the standard has been to uh, perform what's essentially an epidemiological analysis. We take a sample of patients across the country, and then we abstract it out to saying, here's what it looks like for the entire country. And so uh, what, what we're seeing now, though, is the ability for us to actually look into every geography, into every you know, aspect of society, and really understand uh, the differing needs of different parts of America. And I think that's very powerful because so much of, of where we're choosing to invest resources and where we choose to uh, improve policies has a lot to do with the very local nature of, of how care and, and unmet needs are felt. Okay. Got it. And let me ask you this. I mean, when we're thinking about what can help move the needle on um, data collection and um, getting more insight into patient journeys, what can uh, either state leaders or payers or providers be doing differently on their end uh, when they're collecting or um, sharing data that might help improve this process or, or speed this improvement along? And there are a few different levels uh, to this. I mean, first, I, I believe payers and providers are, are starting to see the wisdom and connecting uh, their data with others or other sources to just really more deeply understand the patient journey and figure out ways that they can improve outcomes. Uh, they're using it to train models that identify disease. They're using it to understand where uh, quality is not meeting their standards. And so it's already, I would say, among the among the private sector, a, a huge uh, source of insight and a huge opportunity uh, felt by them. But the problem for, for many of them is just getting a hold uh, of and control over the data that they see. Many of them are sitting on vast probes of information that are, are distributed across many different systems. Mm-hmm. Um, they're controlled by, you know, maybe big EHR providers and, and not really the provider system. And so getting, getting, a, getting a hold of that data is, I think, number one. And the number two is knowing where the value is. I think so many people struggle because we're in a, we're in a sea of data. There's data mm-hmm. everywhere, but so, it's so difficult to then figure out what is it that I really want to get out of it? What am I really trying to fix? And ergo, what data and insights do I need in order to do that? Interesting. Okay. And would you recommend um, those, those institutions and stakeholders? I mean, how can they go about doing this? Is it a matter of population health analytics and really zooming in on certain populations um, that are perhaps more marginalized to, to identify disparities? Or is it something a lot more technical, like uh, having the infrastructure and capacity to process massive amounts of data? 
I, I, I'd start with where you began, which is to say that so much of it is around understanding the needs of their population. A lot of folks have an idea of what they think their populations need, but we can use science to actually go deep, really understand specific subpopulations that you're treating, figure out ways that they're being treated uh, well and poorly, and then use that as an opportunity to, to really improve um, their outcomes. So I, I invest uh, a lot of time in education around how to do that well. And I believe that institutions need to start there. I believe the technical side of it is actually coming along really well. We, we used to talk about interoperability being this huge challenge in healthcare, mm-hmm. but I feel like as systems have evolved and the ability to do cloud-based analytics at scale have evolved, the kind of API landscape has evolved. And that allows folks to kind of bring data from one place to another to be able to analyze it in a compliant way. That Those systems are there now. And mm. so really institutions have to start with their populations and understanding their needs. And if they do that well, everything else that follows turns out to, to be very good. Yeah. Okay. Okay, great. So, and then I wanted to talk about the limitations of such data and maybe in the context of sampling bias. I know the last time that we talked, um, we, we spoke about Map Enhance, this new feature of Komodo's that basically layers or brings in additional data from a network of specialty partners. Um, and, you know, you mentioned that through that feature, uh, Komodo Health can actually uh, check that third-party data for sampling bias and kind of present that to potential users or clients. Uh, what about like Komodo Health's data sampling bias? I'm wondering if you could talk about that. We built the map with the entire uh, understanding that like at some point we will try to catch every single interaction in the healthcare system. But until we're at that point, there is um, always bias in data. And, and the beautiful thing that we've really invested in is understanding where that happens, which geographies, which payers, which populations are underrepresented in our data. And then how do we correct that? And so uh, we actually invest a lot in projecting uh, gaps in our in our healthcare map. And by doing that, we have a deep appreciation for where we're missing visibility. And then we invest in, in going and trying to fill that out. And that's very empowering for our customers because they can use that, as we say, as a source of truth to inform their own behaviors. Hmm. So being transparent, I guess, about where the gaps are or where there might be uh, non-inconclusive or not comprehensive data, and then just kind of working around that. Exactly. And I think so much of what we've suffered from in healthcare is exactly the word you said, which is transparency. We believe uh, analysts and data scientists that are building models and training models need to be very, very aware of the biases in the data and then ensure that when they're uh, looking at the outcomes, they understand the nature of the population that the data was trained on. Okay. All right. So I wanted to switch gears for a second and talk about the public health emergency, which ended. Um, I think the underlying important undercurrent is the data that's we've grown accustomed to is is going to be shifting pretty drastically. Um, you know, the PHE mandated that local governments feed their data to the CEDC, of course, so that we can have a more complete picture of what's happening in the country during COVID. And now some of that will be changing, and that includes test positivity rates, cases, vaccination coverage. So I'm wondering what you make of the shift and how you're preparing or you think stakeholders should be preparing for this so that we don't create additional silos in this system. 
It's a great question. So much of what we discovered during the pandemic was around just how lacking our systems were in reporting and understanding uh, where disease was felt and understanding outcomes. And so my big kind of thought as we move into this next phase is how do we ensure that that folks that are were left behind in the digital transformation, moving to telehealth and moving to settings of care where um, you have a lot of providers that could be um, and, and and almost resources provided to you virtually could be applied to broader swaths of the population. I think that's going to be the thing that we as a society are going to be struggling with as we see the reshaping of, of medicine in this country. Mm-hmm. And in terms of our, our federal government having a sense of what is happening um, across all local and state governments, I mean, what do you think um, should be done in terms of data to help prevent um, this kind of scattershot um, piecemeal data collection in the next public health emergency? Um, should we have a more consistent, maybe permanent infrastructure for feeding local and state data into a national database? I firmly believe the answer to that is yes. Uh, I think we learned that we could do it in a pandemic, but it shouldn't take a pandemic for us to do the same thing for cancer. It shouldn't take a pandemic for us to do the same thing for obesity or heart disease. There are so many conditions where we know that they're creating worse outcomes for our population. And if we had access to the data as a society, we could make better decisions on how to address all of the public health crises that we face as a country. My hope is that we learn something from this process and we start treating uh, a lot of other conditions with the same level of urgency and desire to to, to truly address them. Mm-hmm. And do you think that it's going to be enough to leave this kind of data collection and data sharing optional or voluntary? Or do you see a role for regulations to step in and really mandate this? I would love to believe that if we left it open and voluntary, folks would uh, voluntarily share information. But uh, we've we've shown that that's just not the case. And the pandemic afforded us a huge window into what happens when you enforce collection uh, and sharing uh, and transparency and making it publicly available to folks to to really interrogate. Uh, you really democratize access to to those insights right now. Uh, policy can really help drive improvements to outcomes in, in cancer and heart disease and many other places where it's needed. Fantastic. Uh, well, thank you so much, Arif. It's great to have you on. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here. Hey, we're still gearing up for our Fierce 50, our new report launching this year. And I've got an update for you. The inaugural Fierce 50 will be selected based on these pillars innovation, social impact, health equity, and breakthroughs in patient advocacy. Spread the word because this is just the beginning of the Fierce 50 journey. Artificial intelligence, machine learning, large language models, generative AI, no matter what you call it, there's one big idea on everyone's mind. Some scientists have called generative AI a technological shift on par with the advent of the steam engine. But the question remains, will that change be for the worse or for the better? Microsoft-owned OpenAI released ChatGPT just a little over three months ago. But there's still a lot of hype. Google Health followed close behind with their MedPalm 2, a large language model, designed for healthcare. Like previous iterations of ChatGPT, MedPalm 1 had disappointing results on things like the U.S. medical licensing examinations. 
MedPalm 2, however, reached expert level with 85% accuracy. Since then, it seems like every sizable body in healthcare is coming out with its own way to integrate AI into the continuum of care. Google is testing the tech in health insurance prior authorization and claims processing. Microsoft is imbuing patient-facing chatbots with LLMs, and Doximity is using it to streamline administrative tasks. But there are ethical and safety concerns regarding the new tech. So in response, some institutions are researching how to use AI in healthcare responsibly. This past spring, the Healthcare Information and Management Systems Society, or HIMSS, held its annual conference in Chicago. Fierce reporter Annie Berkey was on the ground at HIMSS. Annie covers the health tech beat at Fierce. So I asked her to join me here to talk about AI and what it means for health tech. Hey, Annie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. There's been a ton of AI coverage across all Fierce publications, but at Fierce Healthcare, you cover the health tech beat. So has this been all you've covered the last three months? Honestly, Teresa, mostly I've been covering AI. We have so many generative AI stories coming in that we had to make an AI tracker or all of our time would be spent only covering AI. Wow, I actually didn't know about that AI tracker. (laughs) It's pretty neat. (laughs) Before we get back to the launch of ChatGPT4, which seemed to set off this new leap forward, can you tell me a bit about the most notable recent AI stories that you've covered? Yeah, it has been rare to have a day where Heather or I didn't publish a story relating to AI. I was seeing a lot of AI usage in the diagnostic space. Radiology and pathology specialists have been seeing their workflows augmented by the tech for a while now. Page expanded their breast suite this month. The suite provides tools like AI assistance, highlighting suspicious clumps of tissue, helping count suspicious cells, and prioritizing sensitive and timely cases. Microsoft, the same company which has invested a billion dollars in OpenAI, has funded much of Paige's work. So Annie, are you seeing AI-infused pathology in other areas? Breast cancer is definitely a big one. There have been other areas of focus, but breast cancer is the number one cancer in American women. It's the second leading cause of death in adult women in the U.S. So not only are there a lot of people to save, but there's also a lot of data to build these models off of. Mm-hmm. models become robust by being trained on more inputs. The models then also help with evaluating cancers, which has been notoriously subjective and part of the reason for inequality between treatment and outcomes in white and black women. We write a lot about inequity in healthcare, and you hear a lot about biased algorithms. Is that a big concern with these models? Bias is definitely one of the reasons that companies are being cautious with AI, Large institutions are trying to answer questions like this. But as you pointed out, bias already exists in healthcare. Humans are notoriously biased, as are the systems we create. Well, I guess that leads to the big question. Will AI replace doctors? The short answer is no, but no one can predict the future. Even with pathology, which is not patient-facing, a certified pathologist is required to confirm results. AI may help with tedious tasks like counting cells. It's not diagnosing anyone. Experts in the space make the distinction between augmented intelligence and artificial intelligence. Augmented meaning amplified, boosted, or added to as opposed to inauthentic? Exactly. I spoke with PreciseDX Chief Medical Officer Michael Donovan about this distinction. 
Precise DX focuses on grading stages of breast cancer diagnoses. You can think of grading as distinguishing cancer between stages one to four, one being more treatable, four being least treatable. It can be subjective. Black women tend to receive lower grade diagnoses, which means that they can also receive treatment out of proportion with the nature of their cancer. So black women actually have a 4% lower incidence of breast cancer, but a 40% higher mortality rate. So like I said, there's already bias in medicine. Mm -hmm. Precise DX's tech accurately predicted early stage breast cancer reoccurrence by following 2,000 patients from Mount Sinai Hospital. And so part of the reason for that is that they've also standardized the grading processes that previously changed from hospital to hospital. Mm -hmm. So you have these new powers coming in saying across the board, these are the rules we are going to follow. And as opposed to relying on one pathologist's interpretation, we're going to really start counting cells and putting things in in regimented Mm -hmm. form. So... With this subjectivity in mind, I asked Donovan about whether the function of the pathologist is on track for fundamentally changing. And this is what he said. Now you have a tool that is quantifiable, standardized, and has been validated in a context of risk associated with grade. And it actually will make you a better radiologist. It'll hone in on the regions that you really should be looking at because it's a milieu when you look at some of those screens. And that helps to refine how they are. And I do believe it will make us and make pathologists better. So are there other areas where we see AI beginning to touch patient care? AI has made inroads into radiology and pathology, but putting generative AI and LLMs into healthcare is still very new. I attended a Google Media Roundtable at HIMSS this year. Google Health Research Lead and Physician Alan Karthik Songlingham sees a future where physicians even ask questions with AI accessing mountains of data, research, and patient records to provide an answer. There's a lot of talk about patient-facing chatbots, and even provider-facing chatbots easing patient navigation through care. But I also think an area where we're going to see a lot of LLM usage is in accessing data that already exists. I just spoke with Edlene from Amazon Web Service, or AWS, and Shoab Mufti of the Allen Institute about their collaboration on brain mapping called the Brain Knowledge Platform. The huge offering that AWS provided the Allen Institute is management of data. Currently, all of medical knowledge doubles every 73 days. What? 73 days? I wish my knowledge doubled every 73 days. (laughs) My son will do that for sure. I think his brain (laughs) knowledge is doubling every few months. Oh, yeah. That's the beauty of little kids and the struggle for the rest of us. (laughs) 73 days. Imagine trying to keep up with the onslaught of research. No one is keeping up with that onslaught of research. So AI can be a great tool in aggregating data from disparate sources and creating something similar, maybe possibly like a central medically viable truth. So is this brain knowledge platform reaching patient care yet? Well, no, (laughs) we're not anywhere close to that. But Mufti imagines a not-too-distant future where even curious high schoolers can tap into the platform and explore the nuances of brain cells. That's great. 
you know, it, you and I have talked about this. I am definitely not free from fear regarding what AI means for our future. Um, but advancements like this could, could hold huge promises for our health. Mapping the brain on the cellular level could mean understanding Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, the way we think and act, maybe even understanding what makes us human and not artificial. So if this isn't reaching patient care yet, what is the significance in the AI conversation? I'd like to zoom out a bit here and talk about a few things tangential to AI, (laughs) interoperability and security. We're reaching a critical mass of data. Data is piling on top of data without really being mined for its gold. Part of what's been holding us up is a lack of advanced tech like LLMs, but we've also been held up because we haven't had interoperability. It's another hot topic in tech. For patients, that can mean your doctor can more easily access the whole of medical knowledge, but also that they can access your records from another provider and payer. It seems bureaucratic and honestly way less sexy than AI, but digital walls can limit the power of AI. Just like there's fear around what AI means, there's fear around interoperability. Healthcare organizations want to share and access data without making themselves vulnerable. But a handful of organizations are being the ones to move ahead and pave the road for national interoperability. In February, the Department of Health and Human Services celebrated the first group of companies. Six were approved to begin onboarding as Qualified Health Information Networks, or QHINs. If they all complete the process, these six companies will join the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, or TEFCA, that would improve sharing of data between these organizations. One of the first prospective QHINs is Health Gorilla. I spoke with Health Gorilla Chief Medical Officer Steve Lane at HIMSS about why the company took the leap. And here's what he had to say. I think most clinicians understand that having a complete picture of their patient's information and their patient's needs is going to allow them to do a better job providing care. There are so many opportunities to bring to bear a more holistic view of a patient's information so that you can provide the right information to the right user at the right time. That's a continuing challenge. When you're in the interoperability space, the principal focus is on moving the data. I think then we build on top of that looking at the quality of the data, you know, the completeness of the data. Health Gorilla is a notable name, but are there other organizations on board? Well, the six initial prospective QHINs include Commonwealth Health Alliance, eHealth Exchange, Epic, No2, Konza National Network. So some notable names, but since HIMSS, 27 more organizations have joined, including Kaiser Permanente, Johns Hopkins, and Mayo Clinic. So it will make a difference in convenience and even treatment and care. All right. Cybersecurity is a big deal in the healthcare system, and yet you don't hear about it a lot. Why do you think that is? Well, I would argue that only lawyers, cyber insurance providers, and security organizations know the true state of cybersecurity in American hospitals. Mm -hmm. For that reason, I spoke with someone from biomedical security company, Silera, Chief Security Strategist Richard Stainings, and I met on the HIMSS exhibition floor to discuss the state of security. I asked him about whether or not interoperability will make systems more vulnerable to cyber attacks, and this is what he said. Once a perpetrator gets inside the perimeter of a, of a healthcare system, it's relatively easy for them to migrate laterally across the network. 
And we've seen that with worm-like malware, for example. WannaCry was a worm, right? And it got its foothold into a number of hospital systems and it spread laterally. We now have such a massive amount of IT systems and IoT systems in our healthcare systems that are now connected that um, all it takes is one small breach in the dike. And this is the danger, right? We now have so many systems that are connected to one another. If one of those systems goes down, it means reduced functionality on all of the other systems that rely upon that impacted system. All right, Yanni. Well, thanks for talking about this with me. It sounds like you had a really productive time at Hims. Yeah, Teresa, thank you for having me. I know Hims was a little while ago, but the the ripples are still rippling, and it will be interesting to see where we're at in time for mm-hmm. next year's Hims. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find out more about everything you just heard at FierceHealthcare.com. This month is Plastic Free July. So next week, I'll be talking about single-use plastics in healthcare. Where are they necessary? And what can we do to reduce disposable plastics? So tune in then and every Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.